You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Bob Woodward, the renowned Washington Post investigative journalist and best-selling author, is making headlines with his new bombshell book on President Trump. Based on 18 recorded interviews with Trump, Rage details the president's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic, race relations, diplomacy with North Korea, and a myriad of other issues that have arisen during the past two years. Woodward sat down with White House Bureau Chief Phil Rucker for a conversation with Washington Post Live. Let's listen. Hi, everybody. Welcome. I'm Philip Rucker, the White House Bureau Chief at the Washington Post. Our guest this morning uh, at Washington Post Live is Bob Woodward, the renowned journalist, the Washington Post associate editor, and the author of a new book, Rage, uh, about the presidency, uh, the last year or two of the presidency, including how President Trump handled the coronavirus, North Korea, race relations. It's an extraordinary book based on 18 uh, interviews that Bob had uh, with the president. Uh, an incredible amount of access. Bob, as you know, uh, joined the Washington Post in 1971. He made headlines around the world uh, for his reporting on the Watergate scandal, which of course led to the resignation of President Nixon. He's the winner of a Pulitzer Prize. He's the author of uh, 18, uh, excuse me, 19 books now, and he joins us here today. Uh, Bob, welcome, and thanks for coming back to Washington Post Live. Thank you. Great. I, you know, that the, the Book Rage, it's out today, but it's already created so many headlines over the last week. And I want to go right to the heart uh, of the explosive revelation that you report in Rage. It's those early months of the coronavirus when people in the United States were starting to learn uh, about this virus in China. And you detail a scene behind the scenes about what Trump learned in the Oval Office on January 28th. And then what he told you 10 days later, uh, as the president was publicly downplaying Uh, the threat and lethality of the virus. Tell us what happened in those moments. Well, on January 28th, and and this is before the virus is really on anyone's radar, President Trump's national security advisor, uh, Robert O'Brien, said to him in a top secret intelligence briefing, the virus is going to be the biggest national security threat to your presidency. And uh, this was a contrarian view at that point. Matt Pottinger, the deputy national security advisor who worked in China for the Wall Street Journal for seven years, stepped in and said that's exactly right and gave the specifics to the president why this was going to be a, a pandemic coming to the United States because it could be transmitted the virus through the air and could be transmitted by people who had uh, no symptoms. And uh, it was one, and and Trump asked questions about it and he learned from Pottinger and O'Brien, and this is the key fact, Bill, uh, that this was gonna be not just another health problem, it was going to be like the 1918 pandemic, the Spanish flu in the United States that killed 675,000 people. So then yeah. 10 days later, when I'm talking with Trump, he mentions this. I thought he was talking about China at that time because in February, the whole issue was the virus in China, not in the United States. I later agree months later learned of this January 28th 
conversation, which is the key, it's the point I, I begin the book at. So Bob, from January 28th, when the president learned how severe the threat of this virus was, all the way until sort of mid-March, the president was insisting to the public that it was no big deal, it was under control, it wasn't gonna be a real threat to the United States. Did you learn in your reporting, did the, did the White House staff who also knew about the lethality of this virus, did they try to intervene in any way? Did they try to get the president to do more or to level with the American people or were they also in denial? I think there was a denial across the board and uh, Trump, as you know so well and have reported so superbly, Phil, Trump uh, is going to, he's a one man band. He's gonna do what he wants to do on impulse or information he has. And so uh, he's a bulldozer to the staff and quite frankly, to the country. And uh, it, he just says what he wants. And so there, there's no control. And this is one of the problems in the Trump presidency that he doesn't build a team, he doesn't plan, he doesn't sit down and say, how are we going to tackle things like the pandemic? But the pandemic is like nothing else. And in my conversations uh, with the president, I kept saying, look, this is, going, this is the leadership test. This is about the people in this country. And what are you going to do about it? and uh, actually went through at one point a checklist with him of how you address testing, yeah. how you address international relations and so forth. And Bob, you, you called the president a one-man band just then, and you're exactly right. That's how he's been for three and a half years. He has been saying publicly uh, in defense of his handling of the coronavirus that he was the one to decide to ban travel to China, of course, from China rather to the United States. Of course, it wasn't a, a full ban, it was rather a restriction, but your reporting reveals yes. that it wasn't a unilateral decision that the president made. Uh, tell us what his advisors were telling him at that time and, and how much of this was Trump's decision. Again, this is one of the things that uh, doesn't check out uh, is he's, he told me emphatically and he said publicly, uh, he was the one who decided, <coughs> excuse me, to restrict the travel from China to the United States. My reporting shows uh, that it were the doctors and the national security team that told the president that he needed to do this, and he okayed it. And if this was such a big deal, he would have gone out and announced it. And Instead, he sent the Secretary of Health and uh, Human Services, Azar, out to announce it. Yeah. So, Bob, the, the president has, has been sort of on the defensive the last few days dealing with the revelations in your book and his own comments uh, that were recorded. I was at the White House briefing last Thursday and asked President Trump why he didn't just level with the American people about how deadly the virus was in real time. And his answer to me was that if you, Bob Woodward, thought what he told you was so bad, you should have gone to the authorities with that information so the public could better prepare. Setting aside the fact that the president is the ultimate authority here, so I'm not sure who you would have alerted, but I, I do want to ask you how you'd respond to that. Why didn't you report in real time? Well, I would have alerted, uh, as you know, um, Marty Barron, the editor of the Washington Post, yeah. or, or uh, 
Stephen uh, Ginsburg, the national editor who you report to, and I would have said this is something that should go in the paper. But when Trump told me on February 7th the dimensions of it, it was in the context completely of China. He had talked the night before with Chinese President Xi, and I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what happened in that conversation. And as you know, chasing a presidential uh, transcript or information about the president's calls with world leaders was uh, like uh, going after a radioactive isotope because <laughs> the whole impeachment, uh, uh, you can't, Trump's call with the Ukrainian president was the problem yeah. in impeachment. And so uh, I was in pursuit of that transcript. And in fact, uh, this is not in the book, but Mark Meadows, the White House chief of staff, called me here at home and said, you know, the lawyers in the White House are having a meltdown because you're looking for this transcript and you know how sensitive transcripts are. So I spent a lot of time, quite frankly, too much time on that. And it was not until May that I learned about the, the key January 28th meeting. Got it. Well, Bob, you do have a lot of transcripts of your conversations with President Trump. There were 18 of them. As I understand it, there was even a 19th uh, after the book went to print uh, in August when the president called you. In your five years of chronicling presidents, of, of writing books like this about any number of, of previous presidents, have you ever had this amount of access? And what do you think compelled President Trump to want to talk to you 19 different times? Uh, you said, did you say five years of doing this? I think it's- I, I meant five <laughs> decades, I'm sorry, five decades. Okay, no. uh, and- uh, <laughs> Forgive me. Uh, no, no uh, when Carl Bernstein and I were working on Nixon, the Nixon case, uh, he would not talk to us. Uh, President George W. Bush, uh, I talked to uh, for four, three of the four books I did on President Bush, uh, but never in in the, the way I was able to talk to Trump. Uh, I had a little tape recorder, Olympus tape recorder, and I had to carry it in my pocket and have another tape recorder by the side of my bed and one downstairs because he would call at night unexpectedly. And uh, I wanted to make sure I could record it. I always told him I was recording it, that that was the process. In fact, the first interview before the virus was December 5th of last year. I wanted to ask and did ask about North Korea, but I went into the Oval Office took my Olympus tape recorder, plunked it down on the Resolute desk and said, this is all on the record. Uh, this is for the book that will come out before the election. Uh, I was able to call him. Uh, he called me, I think, seven times. Uh, he initiated the calls. And what the, the luxury for me, having time, I mean, you, you do your stories every day, every week, and I can kind of say, okay, well, he said this in February. What's the origin of that? 
as you know, you we all live our lives in chronological order, but you can't report in chronological order. You have to say, oh, I learned this uh, uh, in February. Uh, and when you realize that what happened the month before is key to all of this, uh, and you learn that months later, you have to put it together. And I can do that uh, in a book. Uh, was quite honestly an extraordinary experience because he would allow himself to be interrogated and questioned, and he would push back and he would give his opinion. I uh, in in this uh, last conversation, this is one month ago. He called after the book was done, and uh, in that conversation. Uh, I asked about the virus and he said, well, nothing more could have been done. Nothing more could have been done. That just does not check out. So much more could have done, been done. Yeah. The responsibility was on him to inform yeah. the American public in an honest, straightforward way. And he did not do it. And my wife Elsa said, okay, well, what should he have done? Elsa looked at into the history books and found out what Franklin Roosevelt did after Pearl Harbor, an, an equivalent crisis for the country. And in those fireside chats, Roosevelt said to the American public two days after Pearl Harbor, said he said, it's all bad news. Uh, we're going to have to work on this uh, every day, every hour. He said very, very explicitly that uh, this was an issue that would test the very existence of the United States in the world. And then he went on to say, in a very important way, he said, I know if I you learn this truth, that you will rally and in your hearts, we will deal with it. And the great sadness, the great uh, tragedy of all of this that Trump is as he told me and is you know I want to play it down I want to play it down well my work on nine presidents and reading of history in college you studied history Phil presidents really have been able to tell the truth to the public when the public yeah. realizes they're getting the truth they they organize and they get behind the leadership of truth not the uh, leadership of playing it down. Got it. Well, I, I want to ask about Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law. Sure. He's been one of the leaders of the government's response to the pandemic. And you have some interesting reporting, not only about how Kushner has viewed the presidency and, and the pandemic, but about how others have viewed Kushner's work. Uh, tell us what Dr. Fauci and some of the other uh, medical and scientific experts in our government uh, make of, of the young son-in-law? Well, I, I described meetings in the Oval Office where Fauci, uh, the leading uh, expert on infectious diseases in this country and in the government, uh, and whenever he would challenge the President uh, Kushner and some others in the room, were, you know, they'd stiffen, uh, you can't talk to the President like that very defensive, erected a wall around the president. 
And uh, I report that Fauci felt very much that uh, the president had really a negative attention span and that the only thing the president was interested in was his reelection. Bob, you, you quote in the book, Jared Kushner is saying that, the, and I quote, that the most dangerous people around the president are the overconfident idiots. Uh, you write that that's a reference to Defense Secretary Mattis, uh, to Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, and to the economic advisor, Gary Cohn. Uh, Jared was on the Today Show this morning and accused you of mischaracterizing his comment, saying he was not referring to those three individuals. He even uh, said that he had an audio recording of the conversation just like you did. In, in what seemed to possibly be some sort of threat to release the audio. I, I just want to give you a chance to explain what it is that Jared Kushner said and See, who the, he intended to refer the, to. If, if you look at uh, Jared Kushner's quote, he said, well, uh, there were people in the campaign and then suggests that he was referring to these overconfident idiots in the campaign uh, in the transcript, it's clear he's talking about the administration. The administration is not the campaign. And <laughs> the key people that Trump told me, uh, like General Mattis, who was Secretary of, of Defense, I asked President Trump about him and, and he dismissed Mattis as nothing more than a PR guy. Uh, Tillerson, the Secretary of, of State, he said he was dumb as a rock. Uh, it, 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 it is kind of this, this whole idea of you can take facts and kind of turn them and suggest. And uh, I'm, I'm quite interested in when uh, Jared says he has tapes, I have tapes, I taped him with his permission. Uh, I suspect that he was taping me. He did not extend the courtesy to me that he was taping the conversation. Uh, that's fine. And I report accurately what he said in the book. And there are uh, some much more important quotes from him, quite frankly. Uh, he says that uh, yeah. Trump executed a hostile takeover of the Republican Party that the, the platforms are uh, written uh, by people who are extremists and it is uh, a disparagement of the Republican Party. I wonder, uh, Trump has lots of support in the Republican Party. If, uh, do they look at Trump as a, a hostile takeover? Certainly he's different, but is it hostile? Uh, so anyway, yeah. we will be de dealing more and in depth with uh, what Jared Kushner had to say. Yeah, and one other thing that was really striking in, in reading Rage from Kushner is that, that in June, as the coronavirus was spreading pretty wildly across the Southwest, the Sunbelt, uh, Texas, Florida, elsewhere, uh, Jared said that it was important, strategically important to get the president's head away from governing and focused on campaigning, of course, underscoring that the reelection campaign has been of paramount importance to the president uh, and to those around him in the White House. And, and I, Bob, I wanna shift to North Korea quickly. Certainly. You have a lot of reporting and, and, and you actually obtained the, the secret love letters that 
Kim Jong-un sent to President Trump and, and quote them extensively in the book. And I just want to ask you to talk a little bit about their relationship, because in his interviews with you, it's extraordinary how Trump is so taken by Kim. Clearly, the North Korean dictator's flattery uh, worked on, on the American president. He bragged about how he's the only person that Kim will smile with. Uh, in a photo, he bragged about how Kim tells him everything, including the gruesome details of having had his uncle killed. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that and, and what was your takeaway uh, learning all of this? Well, it's an it, it's interesting original experiment in di diplomacy because you know the normal playbook is yeah. that you send people to meet uh, from both sides and you work out a summit meeting between the two leaders, as the president told me, I, I won't quote him directly, but uh, uh, he, he said, well, what did I do with him? I gave him an effing meeting. And that's all I did. It, it took me two days. And they did charm each other. Trump felt very much that it uh, worked. We didn't have war. And you, and as I point out, uh, you have to give him credit. At this point, there's been no war. A uh, lot of people were worried there was going to be a war. Uh, we don't know where this is going to go. The relationship between Trump and Kim Jong-un, North Korean leader, is not good now. Uh, there's a lot of tension. So uh, we, we will watch that. But the, the nature of uh, how they talk and how they leaned on each other and how they uh, maintained they were friends, would be friends forever, trusted each other. As you pointed out, Trump told me, said, uh, Kim Jong-un told me everything, explained. And Trump said, Kim told him that he was ready to go to war. Uh, I did some other reporting and uh, confirmed that. Uh, Secretary of State Pompeo uh, heard that from Kim also, but he wasn't sure whether it was a real threat or whether it was a bluff. So this, uh, you, you, when I got that, some of that information in those letters, I kind of, wow, this is a book in itself. I, I did do a, a shortened version of it in Rage. Yeah. And Bob, another thing in, in the book that, you know, as a journalist, when you're reading an account and, and, and you know, it, a lot of times it'll leave more questions. And what, some of the questions I had reading your book had to do with Dan Coates, the director of national intelligence. And, and you report that he had always felt that Russia had something on Trump. Uh, and, he, and, and, and that was his suspicion, clearly. But I just have to wonder, what exactly did he think Russia had on Trump? And did he ever act on it? Did he ever try to investigate it or get to the bottom of it? Or, or was it, did he think the president was so compromised that it was a national security threat beyond sort of a suspicion that he had as the intelligence? I director? report in detail on, on the conclusions that Dan Coates, uh, as the DNI, it's a new position came out of the Iraq war mistakes uh, and they created a director of national intelligence who oversees the uh, CIA, the national security agencies uh, in all 16 intelligence agencies. He's the number one person. And they look through all the intelligence about Russia and 
Putin, and they have a great deal. They have deep cover sources, human sources, and uh, Coates concluded there must be something because of Trump's public behavior uh, and acquiescence to Putin. Uh, he found no proof, but the suspicion lingered and did not go away. Stunning that the top intelligence person would have this suspicion. Bob, a lot of your conversations with the president were on the phone, where the president would call you late at night from the residence. Uh, you, uh, you said you were recording all of those conversations. Uh, it turns out Jared Kushner had been taping his conversations with you. Did you ever learn, did the, did the president ever tape his end of the conversations that he had with you? Or were any staff listening to those phone calls that you knew about? I, I don't know. A couple of times the White House operator would come on and, and say, uh, Mr. Woodward, the president, and there would be a beep. I think that's a suggestion that they're taping it. I would assume yeah. they would do it, but uh, in the residence, I started thinking of him uh, as the night prowler, that uh, I, I believe it's true. He doesn't drink. He has a great deal of energy and engagement. He likes to talk to the people at night. And he's walking around the White House and I mean, he'll, he'll pick up the phone and he would call me and he'd say, you know, how are you doing? I just want to check in. And uh, I, with the time I had, I could write out questions and think about what do I need to ask him about? So I can, when there are, are events like the killing of George Floyd uh, and, uh, this was uh, May 25th, I believe, and uh, created the and accentuated the whole Black Lives Matter movement. And I was able to ask him then about that. In fact, uh, I did ask him, and there's an audio of this that we've released. It's it's quite revealing. Uh, yeah. It's uh, very disturbing in a way also, I believe, to lots of people because I said to the president, said, do you, uh, you're uh, a person of white privilege like myself. My father was a judge, a uh, lawyer in Illinois. We know about Trump's father. We're, we're uh, the beneficiaries of this white privilege. Mr. President, do you have any understanding uh, about the anger and the pain that black people feel in America. And you can hear it on the tape. He just go, wow, you sure drank the Kool-Aid. Uh, and went on to say, listen to yourself, Bob, listen to yourself. And, and, and he said, I, I don't feel that at all. And I spent some time, you read the book, Phil, you know, I. Uh, asking him about that barrier between people like ourselves, white privilege, and uh, people who don't have that privilege and what their lives are like and the impact of all of the presidential decisions and actions and the necessity. Uh, you know, and uh, if I can say this, Phil, you do this so well, uh, in your coverage and in your great uh, book, A Very Stable Genius, 
uh, that you did with Carol Lenig, and you you realize that you've got to understand, you have to get in other people's shoes as a reporter. I would argue it's one of the president's chief responsibilities to understand not just his own experience, yeah. but to understand the experience of others. Well, that's that's well said, and thank you for saying that. You know, we only have a couple minutes left, and I, I want to close by by looking ahead to the election. It's only seven weeks away. A lot of people around the country are starting to vote now in September. Uh, Arif in California asked, how do you see the revelations revealed in your book impacting Republican support for President Trump in the election? Uh, Bob, do you, do you think these revelations in rage are going to have an impact on the election? And Uh, first of all, as you know, I'm old school. I've been Bradley, the editor yeah. of the Post, when I started there, and during Watergate was very much of the view. We do our work. We want to have impact. Uh, sometimes we do, sometimes we don't, but we don't report and write for impact. We report and write to inform our readers. And I remember, if you'll indulge me for a moment, uh, the night. Yeah. Nixon announced he was resigning. So this is 1974. So what is it? Uh, 46 years ago. Uh, Nixon had announced his resignation and Bradley was running around the newsroom saying to everyone, don't gloat. You know, we, we did our part. Uh, and that's to report, not to advocate, not to, uh, not to change political decisions. So Bradley and I are walking through the newsroom to, uh, to the elevator. We're going to go down and get something to eat. And the elevator opens up and out comes Sergeant Shriver, who was head of the Peace Corps in the Kennedy administration. Bradley knew him well. Sergeant Shriver had been married, uh, married to Eunice Shriver, one of JFK's sisters. and Schreiber came out and said, oh, Ben, I just had to be here with this this evening uh, when uh, Nixon is resigning. And and, and I, if you had a video of Ben, he was just, you know, get out of here. You know, we're this isn't <laughs> what we do. And he just snubbed Sergeant Schreiber, who thought he was coming to some sort of party or celebration and as far as Ben concerned and, and it's it's a lesson for me and all of us about yes you do it but we're not trying to I, I did this book uh, some people agree with it some people disagree with it that's fine I'm just I'm old school if if somebody jumps out of an elevator and tries to say oh how great this has had some sort of political impact. Uh, I'm going to be like Ben. I'm going to run for the exit. Great. Well, if that's if that's it. It's all about the reporting, right? As as Marty Baron tells us, we're at work. We're not at war uh, with this president. And uh, with that, we're, that's about all the time we have left. We've got to get back to work. Uh, but thank you for joining us, Bob. Thank you. Thanks, Phil. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.